Managing Violence podcast bonus show with Ron Amram. That's right. Not a typical show today. I am giving you some bonus content. Didn't advertise this. Didn't plan to do it. But I had a chat with my good friend Ron. And uh, it was a good fun chat. We recorded it. And uh, now it's a show. So not only is this a bonus show, but I've also included the bonus content of the bonus show that is normally only available for Patreon contributors. I've made it free for this episode for you to get a bit of a sample of it. So if you like it, make sure you head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash managing violence and you can hear the bonus content for all the other episodes from season four and five. I know you are eagerly awaiting season six and I have an announcement that is coming up as scheduled and the very first guest of season six will be the legend himself, Mr. Paul Vunak. So make sure you don't miss out on that one. Here is my bonus chat with Mr. Ron Amram. I'm joined here by Mr. Ron Amram, return guest from season one. We last recorded in the worst audio conditions in the history of the show. Uh, We recorded in my garage of a house I just moved into with zero soundproofing, zero audio dampening, and those ice cream trucks and motorbikes. (laughs) Uh, Go back and listen to that episode if you you want to hear what a a good conversation with bad audio sounds like. <laughs> it, it was an authentic experience. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah, authentic, yeah. We seem to have a barbecue in the background. It would be all good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, Ron, so, uh, Ron, is, Ron is one of the uh, head instructors at KAYA, which is the Combat Arts Institute of Australia. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, he's also a uh, black belt in Gendai Krav Maga, uh, black belt in Jisen Budo, uh, black belt in Filipino martial arts as well. Um, no, I've got a black belt in Zanzanaru Jiu-Jitsu. I did Filipino martial arts for, you know, I've been doing it for a good 15 years, but never actually graded in any system. Okay, cool. So he's, he's been around a bit. He's been around a bit. Uh, but what we're talking about in this particular episode is, uh, if you want to, obviously, if you want to know more about Ron's background, we cover that in, uh, in the first episode. So feel free to dig back into that one. Uh, but uh, what we want to talk about in uh, this particular chat is how we can maximize managing violence and our skill development and our attribute development during a time of social distancing. So uh, Ron's got a pretty unique view on this, uh, a very uh, pre-zillion view. If you want to uh, steal that, steal that uh, quote from, uh, from Dr. Gav Schneider, uh, it's really, really cool to, uh, to hear what he, what he has to say on that. So Ron, how do, we, how, how do we approach managing violence in an era of social distancing when training opportunities are limited? Cool. So, I think there's a couple of ways or a couple of um, perspectives we can take. So we can look at it from the perspective of a school owner, which is, you know, where where I kind of started. And then the perspective of a practitioner or individual and how those two connect. Um, Now, if I can actually go back to the episode that you and Gav did uh, a little while ago, the second episode with Gav, uh, with Gav Schneider, was really excellent um, in the discussion on resilience. Um, and there was a really interesting discussion that you guys had all about online training. So it's kind of a segue into some of the other stuff, but I think it is important um, to mention that adopting a resilient approach in this era is, is really important to survival. So in the context of a school owner or somebody who um, teaches managing violence management skills or self-defense skills for a living, obviously, 
our, our, you know, our ability to uh, derive income has been impacted. And same thing for anybody who teaches martial arts or combat sports and all that kind of stuff. So um, one of the things that we did at Kaya was we actually um, thought that given the risk that COVID poses and the rate at which it was spreading in Western Australia at the time, um, and taking into account the safety of our members and our um, staff and our instructors, as well as just our reputation as a business, we felt that it's actually important to close the gym down, and that was well before the government restrictions came in. But the flip side of that, if we look at the Brazilians' approach, is that actually gave us enough time to look at alternatives um, for delivery. So by the time the government restrictions actually came in, that meant you know, we couldn't run the gym at all, couldn't open the gym at all. We had already had our uh, CRM, our you know, customer client relationship management software, all tweaked for online training. We had the platform set up. Uh, we had informed all the members of what was happening. Um, we had run several online training sessions as like little experiments to see what would work and what the format would be. We had time to brief all of our staff on how to go ahead. So by the time actually everything actually uh, kicked in, we're we're in much better position to bounce back stronger. Um, and you know that in mind, we we actually fared relatively well compared to some other places that unfortunately did not. Uh, and I'm sure you know you've seen, we've all seen uh, a lot of martial arts schools and self defense schools that have gone under. Just, yeah, it's. Uh... I think there's so much benefit. We we always talk in in, in managing violence and self defence about being first. You, you don't want to be re- be proactive. You want to see the threat. You want to uh, you want to identify the threat and either avoid it or take measures to at least mitigate the risk. We talk about that ad nauseum, and yet uh, so many of us in a bit from a business sense didn't see this coming. Uh, kind of uh, lived in denial for yeah a, a crucial week or two. Uh, and then still kind of put our head in the sand and just complained about it rather than um, figuring out how to stay operational. Um, and that's, that's not a, that's on anybody. I mean, depending on what your skill set is, depending on what your mindset is, depending on where you're at uh, with your resourcing and so on and your personal life and like all sorts of different things. Um, there could be various reasons, but that's just like getting into a fight, isn't it? There's a lot of other stuff going on. A hundred percent. You know, so if we're talking about that, the concept of situational awareness and vigilance, which is key to being able to successfully defend yourself or prevent violence from happening to you. Um, you know, one of the sentences that every uh, self-defense or violence management instructor should say quite often um, is that idea that, you know, saying to yourself, this will never happen to me is probably the worst thing you can do. And well, you know, <laughs> we've seen a lot of people do that during COVID. You know, it won't happen here. It won't happen to me. It'll just be a hiccup. It'll only last a week. It'll last two weeks. It'll be okay. Yeah. Well, th- this isn't my fault. I shouldn't be in this situation. Like none of that helps 100%. in the moment. Like it might be true, uh, but it doesn't help in the moment. Uh, and and what you said there, like you guys saw this coming. Uh, you saw a potential risk. You pulled the pin early, which I guess if we're going to keep the, uh, the self-defense analogy going, you you saw trouble on the horizon. And you decided to uh, detour uh, into into a better location, so that if you end up getting into a fight, at least you're not <laughs> you're at least you're not in an alleyway with no way out. Hundred uh, uh, percent. Or maybe maybe you detoured and got some weapons and came back. I'm not sure. Depending depending on which analogy works <laughs> best for your situation. Uh, and, Absolutely. And then when the, by the time the fight did come, 
you guys are more prepared. Yeah. So, you know, so that worked well for us. And again, I understand that maybe for um, combat sports gyms, that might be a little bit harder. It is harder, especially I think if you're a grappling based system, which is, you know, with striking, you can still play around and do a lot more. Grappling is much harder. Um, but, you know, so I just think it's worth mentioning the, the online stuff because I do think there's still a lot of value to that too self-defense training and violence management training. And, and I'll get more on that in a bit. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of, yes, online training is, you know, not a replacement, but it's definitely uh, the best we can do in a bad situation and we should take advantage. Yeah. Um, so, so just before you move on from that, I just wanted to throw in there as a grappler, um, my, when I really fell in love with grappling was actually, so I was 17. I had just started judo after a couple of years of wrestling. Uh, and uh, my first judo tournament, I tore my ACL and I had to have a mm. knee reconstruction. I was out of action for a year. And uh, in that year, I could not train at all. Um, and look, I, to be honest, I didn't rehab it as seriously as I did the next time around when I was actually more of a growing athlete. But uh, I couldn't train for a year. And I spent that entire year reading judo books. And before that, judo was a hobby to me. It was just something that I did because there was more competition outlet than there was in wrestling uh, where I was. Mm. Um, but reading about the history and the philosophy and, and, the, uh, and the great competitors and the great champions and about all the cool stuff that goes on behind the scenes in martial arts, that's what actually made me fall in love with it as an art. Uh, and so it, wasn't, it was actually the time away from the mat that – I, by the time I was able to train again, I didn't want to wrestle anymore. I just wanted to do judo because yeah. I fall in love with the philosophy of the art. And I, and I think there's so many of us that get so fixated on just doing the physical that we actually neglect. There's so much more to what we're doing. Even if we're not training just for self-defense, even if we're just doing combat sports, there's so much that. to learn. There's so, and there's so many, so much potential to be unlocked there. Um, I was having this conversation actually with, uh, a coach, uh, a sports coach, a football coach. And we're talking about how like at the highest level of sport and we're talking about AFL, not that I'm a much of an AFL uh, guru, but um, we're talking about AFL and we're saying like between the highest performing teams, so sorry for international audiences, it's Australian rules football. Um, yep. Just picture like soccer, but in the air and you're allowed to hit people. Um, <laughs> That's so, <actually> pretty accurate. <laughs> as good as I got. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, sorry, I got sidetracked. Uh, but uh, we're talking about like between the highest performing team and the lowest performing team. If you took the athletes themselves and you measured their pure athleticism, you would not find a whole lot of points difference between the athletes and the best performing teams and the athletes and the lowest performing teams. Because if they made it that far, they're being paid a lot of money to be professional mm. athletes. They are really top 1% of humanity in terms of their athleticism. Look at the NFL, the exact same thing. I mean, they're, if you play in the NFL, you are a freakish athlete, whether you're playing. I think the same would apply to most, you know, high level sports. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So what separates them? It's what, it's what goes on between the ears. It's culture, mm. it's mindset, it's, uh, it's psychology. It's whether they can tap into that innate athleticism and all that can be done away from the field or away from the gym. Exactly. Right. You know, so, and, and let's tie that back to self-defense, you know, so one of the things we talked about actually in the previous podcast, and I know that you had it on your website as well, you had this really nice pyramid discussing what are the most important things um, uh, for surviving a violent altercation, right? And the most important thing was your mindset, 
and I'm 100% supportive of that. You know, like if, if, if your mindset is not right, doesn't matter how, how strong you are, how fit you are, how skilled you are, um, that's not going to make a difference. And mindset is definitely something you can work on away from the gym. But one of the other elements in the pyramid that was really, really important was um, your, your physical attributes, right? So if we distinguish, let's say, between uh, attributes and skill, right, the saying that I often use is that all else being equal, attributes trump skill, right? So if, if I look at myself, right, I'm, I'm 37, I'm COVID weight, 82 kilos, right, <laughs> probably four or five heavier than I need to be. But let's, uh, we take two 37-year-old, 82 kilo versions of Ron, right? One is, you know, no technical capability whatsoever. You know, when I throw a punch, it looks like, like I'm bowling or swimming or what have you. Um, you know, my posture is all over the place. Got no skill, but I am fit. I am strong. I am fast. I don't care if I get hit. I keep going. Um, you know, I'm, I'm mentally sharp. I'm fearless. That's great. You look at the other version of Ron, which is, you know, maybe technically amazing you know every punch is picture perfect every kick throw stab whatever is picture perfect but you know weak unfit cowardly um slow my money is on the first version 99 times out of 100 right now that is absolutely something you can still work on regardless of social distancing or being in the gym right so to get fitter and stronger you don't equipment is is a bonus you can do that without it Right. There's absolutely 100% positively things that you can do to improve your survival chances by being physically better. Right. So being the best version of yourself from a physical standpoint will never harm your chances in self-defense. And I don't think anybody has ever survived a violent encounter and said that was too easy or, you know, I, I was too fit. I was too strong. I was too quick. I wish it was harder. Right? Like, it doesn't happen. No one's ever got out of a fight and gone, man, I really, I just did too much conditioning for that fight. 100%. Never heard an athlete say that ever. 100%. Now, if we think of this even more in the context of COVID, right? Um, you know, being physically fit also boosts your immune system, which is great when you're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Um, a lot of people have been dealing with, you know, issues regarding mental health because of stress. And, and, you know, isolation and all that kind of stuff. Being fit helps you manage all that stuff better. Um, so, and if nothing else, you know, if it just gives you a better chance of physically dominating somebody or, or not being dominated by somebody else, um, great. If nothing else, it means you can run away faster. Perfect. 100%, man. Like, I've had this conversation with a few people. I don't recall if I've done it on the podcast or not. But, I mean, if your physical fitness training for self-defense and i'm using air quotes for self-defense doesn't include the ability to climb something to scale something to lift a body uh i mean if you're if you uh train your whole life in martial arts because you want to protect your family from the worst case scenario but you're not strong enough to carry your, your kids out of a building that's on fire or you're not strong enough to drag your spouse and i say this to ladies all the time they don't see a purpose in strength training it's like well are you strong enough to drag your husband unconscious 20 meters around corners out of a building that's on fire and put him through a window if you have to? Like, are you strong enough Absolutely. to do that? Because if you're not, that's going to be the worst moment of your life. And, 100%. And there's no way of getting around that. That's it. That's a, if that's the only reason to train, then that's a reason to train. 
Um, I mean, I look at I look at so many martial artists like oh, I'm just you know, uh, I only need to hit I only need to hit him once. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Like what happens when he's got friends? How do you make an escape when you haven't run since primary school? Yeah, or even worse, you know, I'll just shoot him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because that works. Um, so, are you you know, so that? that's the next question. <laughs> if that's your response, and my question is, are you fit enough for, for prison? <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, you know, now the other element of that is even just in terms of target hardening and victim selection. Are you going to pick on the person who looks like they can handle themselves physically, regardless of whether they know like they can kick a punch? If you got somebody who's a physical specimen, right, but a lot more intimidating than somebody who's obviously an easier target because they, you know, they won't give you a problem physically. Yeah, there's a, you know what, there's a, there's a psychological basis uh, for victim selection, and there's something to do with. Um, Man, it was ages ago that I read this article, so uh, forgive me if I'm getting it wrong, but it was something to do with um, forearm, like forearm size and neck yeah, right. uh, Some huh. like evolutionary, I mean, forearm size meant that they'll probably probably have greater grip strength. They probably, I mean, if yeah. you, you naturally big forearms, it's probably because you're swinging a lot of heavy stuff around. Yeah. Um, or you're swinging from trees a lot, which I guess is probably makes you a hard target. Um <laughs> And like neck size and yoke size, so that's like your know, your neck, shoulders, traps. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at someone now who's got big forearms and big traps and big neck, and you go, "Dude's probably hard." <laughs> like it's it's not they're not muscles that you accidentally develop. <laughs> Absolutely. She's doing some pretty difficult stuff. Yeah, for sure, man. Now you know another point of looking at that is you can kind of break and you know take a detour into the martial arts. Um, you know, we know it's not the same, but whatever. Um, essentially, with martial arts, you can look at it as almost three levels of, of mastery, right? So the first level of mastery in martial arts is mastering your own body. Then it's mastering somebody else's body. And the highest level, you know, which is maybe a bit more esoteric, is mastering somebody else's will, right, or intent. But in the context of self-defense, that could be more the pre and post stuff that we always talk about. Now, if you can't even get your own body to do what you wanted to do, how can you get somebody else's body to do what you wanted to do? Right? So this is absolutely a time when you can work on that. And in terms of mastering somebody else's will, which is the pre and post stuff, it's also a time that you can work on that. Um, so like the process that I uh, have gone through for myself and, and for the school that we go through um, you know, once you decide on a training outcome, um, the physical training at least becomes a function of three things, right? So you look at the technique that you're looking to, to develop, and we know that that's the least important element of self-defense, right? Like it doesn't matter what techniques you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's considerably more important. But if we look at technique, you know, what you do and how you do it. So how do you throw? How do you punch? How do you roll? How do you kick? How do you do whatever? The training methods that you use to develop that, so that could be, you know, kata or shadow sparring or pot and drills or bag work or sparring or rolling or scenario testing or pressure testing or what have you. And then the training equipment that is available to you, right? So, you know, for example, grappling on mats is very different to grappling on cement. And punching somebody with 16-ounce gloves is really different to punching somebody with MMA gloves, which is different to punching somebody bare knuckles. Right, so the technique, the training method, and the training equipment all affect, you know, how we train for a particular physical outcome. Now, I'm a spreadsheet kind of guy, as you know from our work together. Um, 
for me, what I did was literally put all that stuff in a, like columns. Okay, what do I have available to me? What do I not have available to me? And try and mix and match those different elements in a way that can make sense without having partners to train with. Um, so a couple of examples that I found have worked really well for me is I'm, I'm a really big fan of shadow sparring, not shadow boxing to say, but shadow sparring. So with a particular outcome in mind when you do it, uh, which is essentially just visualization, right? So you mentioned before, you know, when you had your ACL um, uh, surgery, you know, you're doing a lot of research on, uh, on the history and background and culture of judo. And one of the, for me, my experience was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about boxing. Uh, I'm not an amazing boxer, but I really love it. Um, some of the best times I actually improved in boxing was when I've had very bad injuries to either one of my arms. Like I've broken my right arm badly twice, my forearm, and I torn my on the collateral ligament in my left elbow almost clean off in a BJJ comp a few years ago, which obviously limited how I could train. Um, but what I found was that because I couldn't spar and I couldn't do anything with hard contact, I spent a lot of time staying at home just visualizing drills. So going, okay, how would I spar with a particular opponent with a particular mindset and attributes? So let's say somebody who's tall, who's got long reach, who likes to fight on the outside. What, how would I fight? How would I approach it? And I would very, very slowly shadow spar that. Now, exactly the same thing can be applied to self-defense scenarios. All right. So as a particular scenario where maybe your arm is broken and work through what you can do with one arm. Maybe imagine that you've got an issue with your foot, so stick a couple of pebbles in your shoe, go outside and practice what you can. Put yourself in positions where you're purposely off balance or in an uncomfortable um, posture or situation and mentally and visually and then physically rehearse those solutions. What I found when I actually got back to training after those I was actually almost ahead instead of having moved back. Maybe I haven't improved as much as if I would have trained the whole time. Yeah. But concerning the fact that I still improved even though I couldn't, like my sparring improved even though I couldn't spar, I think that's a testament to the results. And I think there's a ton of research that actually supports that. Oh, absolutely, man. There's so much, there's so much research for visualization and like proper I mean, I mean, real intense visualization where you're, you are walking through things in real time. Uh, firing the same uh, the the fi same synapses and getting the same movements happening. It's it's pretty crazy what you can achieve without breaking a sweat. Um, and you can even like change your heart rate. Like there's so many things that can happen to mimic the the real thing. And what you're saying makes so much sense. I mean, if you think about like for the average person who might yeah a serious yeah quote unquote serious serious martial artist who trains let's say four days a week, two hours a night for uh, so eight hours total. Like, what are you doing in that time? I mean, realistically, eight hours. So let's let's say a, a, an average two-hour session, you might do a half an hour of fitness. By the time you do your warm-up and some fitness drills, you might do a half an hour of technique uh, where you're actually learning something or you're practicing something you already know. You might do a half hour of drilling uh, or, or, or rolling or some sort of controlled scenario, uh, depending on what, what style you're doing. And then you probably got another half hour of miscellaneous, getting, getting water, listening to, um, to corrections, whatever, right? Uh, so that's probably what you're doing, right? So you maybe an hour and a half of focus training in amongst that two hour period, which is great. If you were at home and you did a half hour of hard fitness, whether it's just a run or whether you do calisthenics or whatever, you use whatever equipment you've got, you're, you're good for fitness. 
If you spend half an hour visualizing your movement uh, or practicing your movement as best you can, if, you, if you've got solo drills and everyone's got solo drills, I'm talking to you grapplers, right? We all know there's solo drills. We hate doing them because it's not as much fun <laughs> as choking people, but 100%. you've got solo drills. Um, you, you can do it. And there's heaps of improvised exercises for whatever your style is that you can do. So let's do it, throw another half an hour in there. And then you actually read a book about your style for half an hour or an hour. You've probably actually achieved more uh, in that two hour period at home than what you would have done in class because you've had to you do it. yourself travel time, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, there's, there's no reason necessarily to go backwards. Obviously if you're a high level BJJ competitor, there's no substitute for rolling. Your cardio is probably still going to be a little bit down. You're still going to, yeah, you're, st- you're still going to be a little bit slow, but that's going to come back super fast. Absolutely. You know, so if we go to, um, you know, one of the things we talked about last time, which, which is funny because it wasn't until I actually um, listened to Matt Thornton's episode, which was fantastic, and I checked out all of this stuff. I, I you know, the, the concept of aliveness. And I think we talked about, and I just said, you know, resistance and contact and unpredictable responses. I didn't even know about Matt at the time. It just kind of made sense to me. And then I was just going to, that guy says exactly what I meant, except he says it much better. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it annoying with someone who's so much smarter than you, just like has your ideas? hundred <laughs> percent. Well, um, what are you, so, you know, at the moment, um, we might not be able to train alive. I'm doing finger quotes as well. Right. But that's not to say the training is not of value. And again, if, if you visualize properly, um, you know, so again, like, like you said, sit down, close your eyes, go through the scenarios in detail, try and involve as many of the senses as you can um, and be realistic about it. So there's a difference between visualization and daydreaming. They're not the same thing. Effectively visualize, you're actually still getting some form of alive training to some extent. Obviously, it's not the same as the real thing, but you're still going to get, like you said, the, the benefits. Um, so I guess the, the other challenge with that is how do you do that in an online training when you're running a session for somebody else? Um, and that can be difficult. Um, a couple of things that we've found that have worked for us was the first one was we did a bit of a lot of research on, on, um, on actual visualization and then had discussions with our members around the benefits of doing that. But there's absolutely, you know, it feels a bit weird the first few times, but actually running through visualize, visualization drills with people over a Zoom class, if that's what you can do. All right, everybody sit down, close your eyes. You know, I'm going to take you through something. I want you to start thinking about how that works. And it's like almost like guided meditation, but in a, in a violent context. <laughs> kind of the opposite of meditation, right? Um, that's awesome. Guided violence. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it may sound a little bit arty-farty or uh, out there, but for us, that stuff has worked. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, we're fortunate enough that now that we are in, um, you know, in, in Western Australia, we've been allowed to come back to um, playing punch face, which is great. So um, the people who have consistently done that over the few months that we were in lockdown have actually come back significantly better than those who didn't. Um, they were able to switch on back to physical training very, very quickly. You know, their kind of period of adjustment to going back, oh, wait, I remember how this works, was very, very short. Literally from the start of a session to the end of a session of physical training, you can see the difference between those who did it and those who didn't. Um, so quite significant. 
Um, now, the other part of that, uh, one of the things that we did when COVID hit was we started running a, we just call it like Krav Maga theory. So once a week, instead of doing a physical class, we'd all get together on Zoom, we'd pick a topic, um, and we'd just talk about it. And that could be anything that's relevant to self-defense, Krav Maga, you know, Krav Maga is my, my you know, system, but it's self-defense and, and violence management. Right now, the thing is, we know that any violence manager, management expert, uh, or self-defense instructor, you know, worth its salt, will tell you the same thing. It's it's all about the soft skills, right? It's all about de-escalation, um, you know, uh, uh, threat and behavior assessment, situational awareness, de-escalation, use of force, adrenaline management, um, you know, un understanding decision making under stress, understanding litigation in your area, understanding the repercussions of being in a violent encounter. All those things are absolutely 100% things you can still work on. So we would just pick a topic every week um, and run through that. And it became so popular that now we've gone back to physical training. We're still running those sessions once a week. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding that with a lot, of, uh, a lot of instructors are telling me that, that are going back to class and they're going, you know what, we actually got a lot of value out of some of the other stuff. We're going to keep the online sessions we're gonna, or we're going we're gonna to do them once a month or something as a special add-on. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's something I do recommend. Now, one of the things we also touched in the last episode, which I'm surprised I remember because it was that long ago, was that, you know, there is that distinction between combat sports and self-defense and martial arts and everybody, anybody who works in either of those three areas still advertises self-defense as a benefit of their training, whether that's true or not is a discussion for another time. But if you are somebody who is in the martial arts, and you do advertise, you teach self-defense, this is a really, really good time for you to upskill to make sure that what you're teaching is actually relevant in a self-defense context, right? Now, there's a ton, a ton, absolute ton of great online content for that, right? So Risk to Solution have amazing courses on all of this stuff. Um, you know, Risk Dimitri has got the Study of Violence website, which is all free, and it's got amazing content. Um, I actually did one of uh, following the episode with, with Dr. Meehan. I did some of the second side courses. They were fantastic as well. Like there's a ton of resources out there that can help you develop these skills. They're affordable. They're great. They're by subject matter experts. Yeah. Literally, literally just go back through the archives of this show, Google the guest and then go absorb their material. Like the, like, absolutely. That will keep you going for a good year. <laughs> Um, you know, not to mention, this is a really good time to go back and listen to all the episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, if you actually, uh, contribute over at www.patreon.com forward slash managing violence, you can even get all the bonus content. Did you know there's bonus content? There's heaps of bonus content. And it's well worth it. Back to you, Ron. <laughs> I like that. Um, the other thing that you can do, which we've, um, we haven't done as much of, but has been really great is look at you know, we are fortunate, we live in an age, well, fortunate and unfortunate, I guess. We live in an age where um, violence is often recorded, right? How many videos can you find and just go on YouTube and look up, you know, real fight? How many hits are you going to get to? Like a few million? You know, there, there are pages and channels um, dedicated directly just to that, right? So you've got an absolutely incredible research tool that can help you 
develop your violence management skills and understanding of violence without actually having to go and get into fights. Right? Not only that, there's a lot of channels that will actually break down what's going on and you know they explain the, the pre and post stuff and you know, look at how this guy angles here, look what this guy does with his hands, how he's looking there, you know, what are his feet doing, all these things are really important that um, you know, that you get access to that you can't always train unless you get a frontline job otherwise. Yeah, it's one of the things we've discussed about before about how important is experience with violence. And look, I, I have been, I won't say guilty because I don't think I feel bad about it, but I, I have certainly said in the past, like if you don't have hands-on experience, you're not as qualified to teach it necessarily. Um, I think there are substitutes for that, but you have to go out of your way to learn. Like you can't just 100%. stick to the dojo and go, well, no, I don't have to get into real fights. I don't want you to go get into a real fight. Like I've had, I've had young black belts that have grown up in good homes that want to be really good real world self-defense instructors. And they're legitimately coming to me and saying, should I go pick some fights so I get some experience? Well, no, because that would be the antithesis of what we're trying to do with managing violence, right? <laughs> but they feel like they need this extra bit because they've been told that they can't be a good self-defense instructor without it. Uh, and that's, it is kind of a catch-22. I mean, what do you do? Not everyone should go become a bouncer. And if you are a if you choose to become a bouncer just because you want to get into fights, you're not going to be a very good bouncer, right? You're, you're going to be a liability to everybody. So, you know, so um, that, that was actually the reason. Well, uh, let, let me tweak that sentence. That was the reason <laughs> that I got into security. It wasn't to get into fights, but it was because exactly that. I trained for a long time, and I just didn't know where else I could look at, like, seeing if what I learned had actually worked, like, works or not. Yeah. So I got into security, and what I found was I, you know, I was actually a pretty decent security officer because I, I, I don't like fighting, and I don't enjoy violence, but I'm not bad at talking to people. And what I found was that the older priests, skills, you know, like the, the threat and behavior assessment, situational awareness and de-escalation sharpened to a pretty decent level where I hardly ever had to. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I think that there is so much now that you can get around that having to have the hands-on experience. I mean, it's, is it beneficial? Sure. I think it's a shortcut. I think you, you probably learn more from being in three fights than you do from watching 300, but 100%. You can, it depends on how those fights happen too. If you were drunk at the time you, and, and all you did was like swing a lucky punch and then you got separated by, by the bouncers in the bar, that's, you probably didn't learn much from that. That doesn't make you a, a you know, ninja death commando. Um, you probably would have <laughs> learned more. Grandmaster, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You probably would have learned more from watching 300 breakdown videos. But the point still stands, you can get around it now because there are so many more resources available. You just have to have... Uh, I, I guess probably the thing, I think the thing that um, I'm getting off topic, but uh, it's my show. So who cares? Uh, the, <laughs> I, I think the thing that uh, the real world experience gives you is a, is a pretty good bullshit filter. I think it gives you the ability to go, you know what? I don't think that guy's actually done it before because I don't, I can't imagine that would work. Um, okay, so, so let me interrupt you for a sec. Just so, you know, I've got some notes here of a bunch of stuff I wanted to, to mention. And one of the things that, I always get when we get to like talking about online examples is please, please, please don't be that guy who would then like post a comment saying, I would have done X. Like, exactly, man. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've said before several times on the show, if you start your comment with, I would have, I know you haven't been there. hundred percent. Because anyone who's been there knows that they don't know what they would have done under those circumstances because whatever is in that 38 second video is not the whole situation. Great. 
Um, so, you know, so you got all these resources, which are fantastic. And um, the other thing, which is great is obviously you can find channels that also analyze it, but sit together with your team and go through that stuff together. And one of the other things that I think I, I wanted to touch on, because I think it's important, regardless of what type of online training you're doing, is social distancing and, and isolation can take a very heavy toll, especially if you're a person who's naturally social or sociable, right? And just doing those Zoom sessions and talking about that stuff, if nothing else, you get to see your friends, you know, you get to see the people you train with, you get to see the people you share the mats with, and that in itself keeps you motivated to keep doing stuff, um, which is incredibly important because the worst thing you can do is to stop. Um, so if we're just tying that stuff together, right, um, physical training is of paramount importance. You can absolutely 100% still do it. Um, there's absolutely hardly any limitations on that. Maybe if you're a bodybuilder, sure, but for the context of the functional stuff of self-defense, you can 100% still train effectively and improve your chances of survival in a violent encounter by being the best versions of yourself physically. Yeah, I've actually got quite a number of bodybuilder friends uh, and I, I've been watching with interest those that didn't go out and splurge on home gym equipment. <laughs> how they've managed and, and you know what? The guys that just embraced it and girls, they just embraced it and went, you know what? I'm going to go walk with a pack on um, yeah, for 40 minutes a couple of days a week or I'm going to go learn how to sprint or I'm going to uh, swim or I'm going to hike or I'm going to ride a horse. or yeah, the, the, I've got literally a whole bunch of physique and bodybuilder friends that I'm, I'm watching them adapt their training. And at the, like we're now three, four months deep into this and I can't see a difference in their physique. Like if anything, and they look healthier, they look happier. And, and, and it goes with martial artists as well, right? How many times do you see someone who, especially professional fighters, right? And I'm not talking about your recreational martial artists. I'm talking about people that are, that are in the gym four hours a day, five days a week. Like, yep. How often do you see them take time away, come back, and they just look like a different person because they're not beaten down by the grind of it anymore, and they're coming back because it's fun. Like you get a professional MMA fighter, and I know you, you, you train fighters. I've trained fighters before. Like they, they come back, and it's like they've forgotten that they loved it because it became a job. Uh, and sometimes you just need to you just need a break. You need to do something different for a little while. Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. You know, so you can still work on that. That physical elements. Now, if we're tying that to, sorry, one of the other things that I kind of uh, lost in my notes somewhere, but um, that idea of, of survival mindset or, or a warrior mindset, right? I think there's a few elements to that. One is that idea that, you know, the harder things are, the harder you go. Um, and physical fitness is one of the best ways to develop that. Like there, there's, there are very little things that will get you more resilient and determined and, and with a stronger, um, sorry, mental attitude than going, you know, I'm going to do this. It's going to suck, but I'm going to do it anyway. Simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what? Like we, we obviously we yeah. Full disclosure, Ron and I work together. Uh, now we did we, no, we didn't, we didn't actually work together the first episode round. Um, no. you, you, you weren't on board yet. So Ron and I work together. Uh, we work with Dr. Gav Schneider. So hence we're, we're both mentioning the word pre-zillions because we literally are dealing with this every day. Um, yeah. I, I did a little exercise when, when Gav first sort of, uh, when I first started getting my head around this term pre-zillions, uh, mm. 
I, I'd sort of do this little mental exercise. I was, I was literally, I think I was in an airport coming back from Brisbane. My flight had been delayed like four hours. I had all this time to kill. And I, I was, it was like, the, I was already on the last flight of the night. So it was like the middle of the night by the time I, I remember. I actually remember that. Yeah. 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 I think I was texting you because um, you, you were in Brisbane too. Um, but uh, anyway, I remember doing this little activity going, what would personal resilience look like? Like, if we're going to take this concept that we apply to businesses and, and culture, and what would it look like? And, and a large part of situational awareness on a personal level is understanding what your, what your risks are. Mm. And if I said to anybody, are you more likely to be murdered or have a heart attack? Hallelujah. Everybody knows you're supposed to, like, if you're, like us, a male in your 30s or 40s, the things that are most likely to kill you right now are traffic accidents and suicide, right? So what are you doing to look after your mental health? What are you doing to look after, what are you doing to be a better driver or what are you doing to manage your sleep or your alcohol intake or your prescription medication or all these things that can, that can actually increase those risk factors. As you go up a demographic, let's say you hit your 50s, now you're more at risk of heart disease, um, uh, uh, colon cancer, a few other bits and pieces fall in there. So what are you doing looking up to look after your diet? At no stage is murder the number one thing that's going to kill you. 100%. 100% right, Joe. And, you know, I think it, one of the, you know, I put out some content the other day and one of the things I was saying was, you know, risk creates meaning. Right. So a lot of the time we tend to focus on what we perceive to be the, the biggest threat to us. But very rarely is that actually the biggest threat. Yeah. And, and it, it was a really interesting activity. It was hard because I actually looked like, okay, okay, I've got young kids. Right. What is most likely, it, what's the leading cause of death for young children? And that was pretty hard. Like no one wants, no parent wants to sit there like visualizing their child dying, but like, and you know what? The answers are drowning or car accidents. So what am I doing to make sure my kids are water safe? What am I, am I spending six to eight hours a week making sure my kids don't drown? No. So why am I doing spending that time focusing on, you know, uh, making sure I don't get raped <laughs> like that, it's, which is unlikely to happen to me as a six foot three male, right? Um, <laughs> you are pretty dumb. I, well, sometimes, uh, but um, not to make light of that, but it's, it's one of those things that we have to prioritize our time. Now, what I found for me personally was I look at martial arts and training in general, and even this podcast, this is my, it's more about my mental health. It's more about my socialization. It's about doing something I love. It's about giving myself meaning. Those things are actually important. Uh, that actually gives me more meaning. That's why I could just as easily abandon reality-based self-defense forever and go do goju-ru karate and practice kata in, the, in, a, in a waterfall and be just as happy because the chances of me having to fight someone off with my waterfall card are, are pretty, pretty slim, but if it makes me happy, then I'm probably more going to, uh, I'm going to survive the stuff that is likely to kill me, which is depression, suicide, heart disease, cancer, et cetera. Absolutely. And you know, like you said, you know, not to make a uh, light of a, of a pretty horrible topic, you know, that, that idea of, of sexual assault or rape, um, even more so a time to focus on the skills that you can still develop that are crucial that you can use at the moment to, to, to prevent something like that from happening to you or your loved ones. Um, the majority of the skills relating to that particular threat are probably still things you can work on right now. Yeah. And look, I, I will say I've contextualized that for first world countries. Like it's, it's for me. If I, if I was living in Papua New Guinea, my attitude might be different, right? If I was living in, 
uh, West Africa, my attitude might be different or my, my priorities would be different. Not my attitude, but my priorities. Yeah. Um, and, and look, even just a resilient mindset when it comes to COVID is, okay, you know what? I can't train at the moment, but what are my increased risk factors? Um, we've been quite lucky here in Australia because uh, our government stepped in fairly early with um, financial assistance, which yeah, will eventually run out. So that's going to change things a little bit. But many countries, you now have people that have fallen very sharply below the poverty line. And whatever what happens when you have a large group of people that fall below the poverty line all at once is you end up with a much higher increase of, I need to steal to survive. Absolutely. Um, and if, okay, let's, let's take a look at vi- managing violence. What have I done to secure my home? 100%. Uh, so it, it, that's a really good segue. So, you know, one of the, the two topics I kind of had in mind there was, the first one was how do we actually approach the, you know, the actual training for, for violence management? And I think we covered that in quite a bit of detail. The second part of that was exactly what you said. Now, as a result of the changing conditions pretty much everywhere in the world, how has my risk profile changed? All right. So, you know, we've seen cases in Australia. Sorry, I'm giggling because it's so absurd. Again, not to make light of, of, a, of a very horrible topic, but people were getting stabbed over toilet paper yeah. at the shops. Yeah, literally. Right? So probably not something you would imagine was a, a high level risk going back six months. Right. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll go on record and say I didn't see that coming. Uh, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect <laughs> like last December that I'd be reporting on people getting stabbed over toilet paper. Uh, and 100%. yeah, I'm seeing some pretty ridiculous things, but that, that's up there. Totally. Right. So we've seen, you know, an increase in overall agitation and aggression pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, occupational violence and aggression, which is obviously your specialty. You know, you know a lot more about that stuff than I do. But, you know, if you're working pretty much in any uh, customer service area at the moment, chances are you're dealing with a lot of people who are frustrated, angry, um, and you are the front line for that, regardless of whether what's going on is actually your fault or not. Uh, so that's increased your risk profile in a significant uh, way. You know, we look at uh, a lot of increase in domestic violence, um, mental health issues and, and mental illness. You know, people are now, there's been shortage of medications in, in a variety of places, you know, so you might not be able to get access to the support and or medication that you need to manage whatever issues you have. Um, and like you said, in terms of crime patterns themselves, if you are now in a position where you're going, wow, I don't have money, but I got to feed my family or I got to get yep. my medication or I got to do whatever it is, you might result to things that you don't normally do. And even for people who were previously engaged in criminal activity, um, it may have changed your ability to perform your, your preferred type of crime to gain the resources that you need, which might make you either um, take greater risks, and those greater risks might come at a greater violence, violent cost to somebody else. Yeah, and it's not just your risk profile changes, it's the threat actors that change. previously i mean (laughs) if we went back 12 months i can guarantee you that there'd be a lot more conversation about terrorism right we'd be talking about terrorists active armed defenders all this sort of stuff that was that was topical uh no one's talking about terrorism right now right reality is that the people that may not have been a threat to you six months ago may be a threat now people that are are good people that that don't normally engage in crime or 
you know, not serious crime who are now pushed to the point where they have to make a decision about what's more important, following the rules or feeding their family. Those mm. people are now a different class of criminal, potentially, or a different class of threat that you may not have previously prepared for. Uh, and that's something that warrants some consideration. How would that person go about you know, uh, getting what they want from me? Someone who's an unsophisticated criminal but might have skills in other areas, right? We're seeing a rise in cybercrime for that reason. Um, a lot more Nigerian princesses. Of, of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more, sophisticated, more sophisticated cybercrime without the typos and spelling errors and <laughs> DSOs. Uh, this, you know, because people having to be industrious as much as that, uh, you don't want to glorify it, but that's what people are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think like you mentioned also that, you know, if, if you are particularly disposed to a particular type of crime, and, you know, for the most part, people tend to stick to what they're comfortable with and they're familiar with and is relatively safe uh, in, in terms of their risk return profile. Uh, you know, my background is in finance and economics. So I, I love the idea of incentives as a, as a result for pretty much, or as an incentive, uh, as a motivator for pretty much anything. And risk return profile is a good way of analyzing stuff like this. Um, so if you are a uh, criminal who is in a particular area, you know, it might be petty theft or something like that. And now your resources have dried up because people are not going out and you're in isolation. You've got fewer targets. Um, if that means you have to hit for a bigger return for the same amount of effort, you might also increase the risk, right? Or vice versa, right? So if your risk of being caught has increased because, you know, places that before were very, very crowded are now not as crowded and you're more easily spotted. If you're going for something, maybe you're going to go for a bigger return. Well, yeah. And guess what? I mean, we, we all know that, uh, that uh, our international delivery has slowed down dramatically, right? It's, it's much harder to get things in, things are taking a long time. Guess what also is taking a long time to come? Drugs, right? It, it's now harder to get drugs than what it was previously because imports have slowed down. There's a lot more, there's a lot more restriction on what can come in and what can't come in. Probably a lot, of more, a lot more shipments are, are being stalled or discovered depending on you know, what's going on. So I mean, that, that's going to put a, whole, a different class of criminals that are on edge. Uh, about uh, what they need to do, how they need to source it. Trying to, there's going to be, <laughs> there's going to be squabbles over who gets what supply as well, um, in, internally within net networks. So things are changing. Yeah. The, the yeah, it's moving. an interesting, uh, yeah, interesting world we live in. But I guess in the context of actual violence management for the individual, um, in that particular context, I think the the main thing is really just to to be situationally aware and vigilant in terms of keeping track of what is going on in your area, being aware of these potential changes, doing some research, and trying to make sure that you can mitigate and protect yourself as well as you can well in advance, um, you know, by, by deterrence or what, what have you, to make sure you're less likely to be selected as a victim. Um, this is also something that, you know, if, if you are a teacher, this is a good discussion to have with the people who you teach. You know, violence, but violence or crime is changing. Here's how it might change. And here are the things you can do about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think it would, would be remiss not to talk about resilience without talking about how we can come out stronger from this. And, and I think um, one of the things that I've noticed on a personal level is uh, when the isolations, the social distancing and uh, the various levels of lockdown started to come out, um, I'd only just moved into my current neighborhood. And... Uh, I made an effort for the first time in years, really, uh, to go out and actually meet my neighbors on, on, on all angles, 
Uh, and I've learned there's people that have been living in the street for 20 years. They gave me a rundown of everybody else who lives in the street, how long they've lived there for, who has medical needs. And we basically just did this from a humanitarian point of view. Like we, we knew we had a lot of elderly people in our street. We wanted to know if anyone needed help getting to the shops or getting, you know, getting groceries or yeah, if they had support. Um, and if not, obviously you know, being younger and healthier, we could go and help them. Um, but by doing that, we've actually established yeah, an informal neighborhood watch because now we all know each other. We know what's normal. Like we wave at each other. We know what cars are normal in the street, what cars are not normal in the street. Um, we are now more prepared as a street. Um, if you take that in a real micro sense, we are now more prepared in a street as a street to do something. I know who the other young people are in my street that I could rely upon. And I know who the weak and the elderly and the ones with small children are um, so that, if we have an incident, I have business cards and phone numbers for everybody. 100%. We've done pretty much the same thing. I was also very fortunate to find that my, the guy who lives like one house down from me is, uh, is A, a police officer and B, uh, serving the army for like 15 years. Nice. Um, so it's great. Um, but no, we've done exactly the same thing, you know, and if you make yourself more resilient and resilient as a community by being better prepared to face whatever challenges are coming, which will allow you to get back stronger. Yeah, I think we have to. And I mean, even just coming back to what you're talking about before with online training, I mean, how many times as a martial arts instructor, do you have someone who misses a good chunk of time off the mats because they're sick or worse? They come to, they don't want to miss training. So they come to, they come to the school and they get other people sick. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was accepted six months ago or three months ago, even uh, that was, that was just normal. Like, yeah, someone, yeah, someone's going to come to class with a cold and you're just like, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, don't get snot on me. Ha ha. And that's pretty much it. Like we would never stand for that now. Like that's changed permanently, <laughs> no, right? Not in a million years. Yeah. So that's an improvement. But if you've got the live streaming set up, why not live stream your classes so that if people are feeling unwell, they can stay home and they can, they can join in. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's a benefit straight off the bat. You've already got the infrastructure there. Let's use it. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so there you go. So I think, you know, we've got two elements here that we're looking at. The first one is your own training and what you can do with that. The second one is understanding what's going on around you and how you can better prepare for that. Um, put those two together in terms of violence management, you're, you're probably still coming out ahead. Yeah, man. and to complete the analogy from before, you know, you've been blindsided. You didn't see it coming. You're, you're on the ground bleeding and you've got you know, people kicking you. Are you going to lay there and tell people it's not fair and that you can't do anything because you're injured and you, you, know, you haven't got all the tools on you and you, 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 you left your weapons at home or are you going to stick a thumb in an eyeball and fight your way out, right? That's what we've got to do <laughs> right now. Start putting thumbs in eyeballs. <laughs> Find what you can do, get on with it, uh, and, uh, and stop being such a wuss. Yeah. <laughs> and much like the first episode, why didn't we just say that at the start? Yeah, <laughs> Man, this this is bonus content. This is a this is a fun conversation. Uh, but uh, cool, man. I think I think there's a lot out of that. I I, I know oh, we didn't really follow a structure. I know we did. We kind of just bantered back and forth. But hey, it's a this this is my time off between seasons. I'll do what I want. <laughs> if you don't like it, tell Ron. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> I'll, I'll stick a thumb in your eye. Cool, man. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to give a plug to Kaya and and what you guys are doing? Awesome, please. So uh, Combat Arts Institute of Australia, we are, um, I'd like to think of us as the leading self-defense school in, uh, in Western Australia. Uh, I own it together with uh, Sensei Noah Greenstones, who's 
phenomenal. Um, and we do a whole bunch of stuff, you know, so other than just the pure self-defense, we also have, you know, a world champion, a former world champion Muay Thai teaching boxing and kickboxing. We've got uh, a gentleman who is a third den under Damien Maya uh, teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, we've got a team of like real experts teaching the stuff that they specialize in. And the whole idea for us is to give the guys and girls who do self-defense with us the platform to work on different skill sets in an integrated fashion with real experts in their fields rather than being a jack of all trades. Um, we do a lot of online stuff, we do a lot of content, and I've got uh, a blog on our website, which is kaya.com.au, C-A-I-A.com.au, with a ton of um, content on self-defense training as well, and also on our YouTube channel as well, so just look up Combat Arts Institute of Australia. Awesome. And Ron is also the uh, WA state manager for Risk2 Solutions. So he's been heavily involved in a lot of our online courses that you've heard me plug uh, over the episodes at uh, r2s.academy. And he's also uh, also runs for us uh, SRA. Do you want to quickly give a, a quick spiel about what SRA is for anyone that we've got listeners in Perth? So uh, if, yeah, you're, if, you're in the, if you're in the market for safety training, Ron, what does SRA do? Absolutely fantastic. Thanks, Joe. So Safety and Rescue Australia, we are one of the oldest registered training organizations uh, for delivering safety and rescue training. We do a lot of stuff uh, in mining and construction. So anything that involves um, working safely at heights, um, enter and work in confined spaces, um, gas testing atmosphere, a lot of courses that relate to work on mine, something construction. Um, one of our primary uh, courses that's actually kind of relevant to all the stuff we do here is actually called safety leadership. Um, so it's about enhanced decision making in the safety context. Uh, and we actually do a lot of the personal risk management in that context as well. So, you know, the, the belief is, um, and, and I think that's relevant to any organizations or any individual, is that you can't uh, make good decisions as a whole, as a team, if you can't make good decisions on a personal level. And that relates also to your personal safety. Like if, if you make uh, shit decisions with regards to your personal safety, you can't be expected to make good decisions for the safety of your family or organization or business. And I think those things, you know, those elements of your life integrate. So it's important to work on all three. Awesome. And you guys are based in Perth, but there, obviously there's online offerings and you guys are, you're actually, uh, you're registered to deliver in, I think in every state in Australia. So if you're, if you're interested in any of that, hit run up, Hit me up. I'll put you in touch, uh, and um, yeah, we can we can hook you up. All right, Ron. Thanks very much for joining me, mate. Uh, I I enjoyed having a, a solid banter, and I'm sure the <laughs> sure the listeners will enjoy this episode. Uh, until, you, the, until next time, mate. Thanks very much. I'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, mate. Bonus content alert. Bonus content alert. Coming up now. Free bonus content for you. Uh, back here with Ron Amram for uh, the Magnificent Seven bonus round. Yes, you're getting a bonus round on a bonus episode. That's how much of a bonus this particular piece is. Uh, I'm calling you for not giving enough value. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, question one, what's your favorite book you'd consider essential reading on combatives, martial arts, or violence? And no, you don't have to say Gab's book. Cool. Okay, so Gab's book is number one. <laughs> um, <laughs> legit, that book is... Fantastic. So Can I See Your Hands by Gav Schneider is, is awesome. But um, probably my favorite book of all time, any, any type of book ever, is uh, Zen in the Martial Arts by Joe Himes. 
Okay. Um, that book, I think, has a tremendous and deep amount of content that is incredibly easy to digest. Like he's taken some of the most, you know, complex concepts that you can ponder as a human being and managed to distill them into like two page anecdotes that you can like absorb and almost immediately apply. And a lot of them do relate, I think, in the context of, of managing violence to self-defense to, you know, to your own awareness and how you interact and behave with others and recognizing threats and stuff like that. I think it's, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, and I make a point of reading that probably once or twice a year and have for the last decade. Awesome. Um, and every time I read it, I find something new. Yeah. I love, I love books like that. You know what? Uh, an underrated book that I do that with is uh tower of Jikundo. Uh, the, the, just because it's such a collection of notes, like you never really absorb it all. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like you just like, like going through a collection of quotes in a way, like it depends what speaks to you at that particular moment. Um, yeah, I, for sure. Every now and then I read and go, man, I can't believe this was written 50 years ago. Like it's, totally. yeah. Um, so that's one. And um, I think a couple of the other ones that I really dig are um, uh, Meditations on Violence by Rory Miller. I think, you know, obviously you've had Rory on the show a couple of times and he's absolutely incredible. And I think you know, like if, if you are a violence management practitioner or aficionado or just interested, I think that is required reading. And um, same with The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's got to be the, uh, I think anyone who doesn't have Rory Miller and Gavin DeBecker in their top five of books is, uh, has, hasn't read them or didn't understand them. Um, so. For sure. And if you didn't understand Rory's book, then come on, man. hundred <laughs> percent. All right. Question two. Who's had the biggest impact on you professionally or in your study of martial arts slash combative slash violence? Um, Cool. So they're, they're all names you would have heard me mention before. Um, there's three, if you don't mind me taking I'll be brief, but uh, three. So Sensei Noah Greenstone, obviously, who I, I run Kaya with, and Noah was my first real sensei. Um, you know, I've dabbled in martial arts my whole life, but he, he was the guy who really got me into making it as a way of life. And obviously, we then opened Kaya together, um, which is also, I think, a huge vote of confidence. Uh, for me, it meant a ton that my sense of like, you know, let, let's open a school together. You know, I think you're at a level where you, you're okay to teach this and, and, and do that with me, which is great. Um, and I've also learned a lot about business from him. Uh, the second is Gav, you know, Dr. Gav Schneider, who's um, I've known for pretty much since we opened Kaya, actually. Um, and he's also had a tremendous impact on me, both in terms of my martial arts um, and self-defense development. I think Gav was the guy who really got me going from martial arts to self-defense. Um, and obviously working for R2S now for the last you know, uh, year and a bit. Um, and Gav is a, the guy's a genius. He really is in, in every aspect. Uh, so he's been a tremendous impact. And then uh, the last one, uh, and I've mentioned him before, is Master Manny DeMatos, who's, um, yeah, uh, you know, I'm a phenomenal boxing coach and a ton of experience with real world violence, but also like, you know, very cheeky and has a, has a way of, of just seeing um, decision trees unfold in real time. Like the what if, if the what if of the what if of the what if of the what if, um, just it, it, it's crazy uh, training with him on stuff like that. And he's the same in business as well, which is really amazing. Very cool. Very cool. Question three. 
What do you think is the most overlooked aspect of violence management or self-defense training? Pre and post, hands down. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a long answer. Pre and post, what happens before, what happens after physical... Everything post. except the actual fighting. <laughs> 100%. Yeah, the, it's the, sad, the, but I think it's true. Like People just don't, don't teach that stuff. That's the unsexy not stuff. Well. It's the unsexy stuff. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, and you can't get a black belt in it, so yeah, why bother? <laughs> Uh, question four. Is there a difference between preparing someone for violence and making them a great martial artist? Yes. Um, but so yes, a hundred percent. Absolutely. You know, if you're just interested in being prepared for violence, you can do that. I think in a much shorter time than it would take you to become a great martial artist. But at the same time, to me, the two are really well connected. Um, you know, I think that if you're a lifelong dedicated martial artist, then you will hopefully develop a lot of the skills that are related to violence management, um, providing that you don't have your blinkers on and you're, you know, open to absorbing what's useful. Um, but the, the opposite is not necessarily true. You know, you can prepare for violence without having the need to become a, a, a great martial artist. What... I often advocate in the context, and, and this is really similar to the discussion we had before, was that preparing for violence is one thing, but if your ultimate goal is to make sure you live a long and happy life, then becoming a great martial artist can hopefully tick a lot more boxes than just a violence management one, um, which will keep you doing that. Yeah, so I, I try and encourage you both rather than just one or the other. Yeah, good answer, good answer. Question five, uh, what do you feel are the most effective elements of a successful reality acquisition or stress inoculation program? And how important is this for preparing people to manage a violent incident? Okay, incredibly important um, is the short answer. Now, in terms of, you know, I was very fortunate to have done um, a significant chunk of training with, with Mike Belzer and Meredith Gold in, in their, you know, raw power using the mugger suits and see how they train it. And they do the scenario and, and reality acquisition stress inoculation programs really, really well. Um, and I think the main thing with that, there's a couple of elements, but number one is you have to be acutely aware of who your target audience is to make sure you can tailor the program to their need because you can very easily do more harm than good. So it's very easy to get that stuff wrong. So you have to know who you're working with and that's probably one of the key elements to get started with. Then the next thing I believe is, you know, everything in progression, um, it needs to be um, gradually introduced, even if that's over a short amount of time, you know, you don't want to throw people into something they're not ready for. So, you know, you have to know who you're working with and you have to gradually get them to a position where they can face the challenges that that kind of training uh, brings because they are certainly, uh, they can be very uh, powerful and uh, not, not always in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. All right, question six. What do you think is the most dangerous myth about managing violence? That if you throw a good white cross, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That's all like, if you just hit hard or if I'll just shoot him, like that, that shit don't work, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think that ties to, um, you know, what was the other question? Question three of what is the most overlooked aspect stuff is, you know, the, the most overlooked aspect is, is actually tied to the myth, which is if I'm physically capable, uh, then I'm sweet when there's actually so much more depth to it than just that. 
Yeah. All right, last one. Beyond your current legacy, what do you still hope to accomplish or contribute to the martial arts world, and how would you like to be remembered? Wow. Uh, okay, this one's actually a bit of a challenge because where I am personally is in a really interesting transition. It's something that you and Gav touched about in the second episode, which, again, I, I can't recommend that episode strongly enough, is the last decade for me has been seeing myself as a martial artist and self-defense instructor, and that's, it. that's been my identity. And, you know, that started when I was 27. I'm now 37. The last four years I've broken more body parts than the ones that are not broken um, through training like an idiot primarily. Um, but also a lot of the work that we've been doing with R2S, which takes a lot of this stuff to a greater audience, has actually seen me change the way that I view myself as something more than just a martial artist. And I think in terms of a legacy or something I would like to be remembered as is, you know, I'd like to leave this world a safer place than I found it. Um, if I can do that, then I don't even have to be remembered for that. As long as that actually happens, then I can go, you know, then I can go happy. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ron. Uh, thank I, you, bro. I, I know we'll talk again tomorrow because <laughs> yep. but, uh, uh, it's, it's, good, it's good to have a chat uh, in this context with you as well. So uh, cheers, brother. We'll talk again soon. Cheers, bro. Chat soon. Thanks again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Ron Amram. A little bit more laid back, a little bit less interview, a little bit more chit chat with a good friend of mine. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, plenty of good insights, I, I hope. Um, we will be back for season six on the 20th of July with Mr. Paul Vunak leading the charge. It's a fantastic lineup we've already got for season six. I can't wait to start having those conversations. We've already got a couple in the can. There's some good stuff coming. I'll see you on the 20th of July for season six. Enjoy, stay safe, talk to you next time.